Welcome to the Real Developer Podcast, where we get into some real conversations about UK land and development with real SME developers, brought to you by Trusted Land. Hi everyone, it's Alex Harrington Griffin, founder of Trusted Land, the land trading platform for real developers. In this week's episode, we met with Ollie Davis from a proof of real developer, Oliver Davis Homes, based in Kent and launched in 2015, who have now had 10 previous projects verified with Trusted Land. We took a look at Ollie's move from an early career in motorsport and Formula One to launching a main contractor through to his current pipeline of 120 units in build and 500 homes in planning for their build to rent portfolio, which is now their core focus. And we also discussed the importance for land representatives at the moment to consider current build cost strains in their appraisals and in their numbers when they're sending opportunities to developers like Oliver Davis Homes. We also looked at Ollie's approach to building these relationships within the land community. Finally, we did also consider the difference in what myself and Ollie's 19-year-old selves would have done with £8,000. Make sure you hang out to the end of the episode where my co-host for today, Andrew Hosford from Pure Structured Finance, gives us another timely, interesting insight from the world of debt and equity. As always, you can go to trustedland.co.uk to download the quarterly Real Developer Index to find track record information and key requirements experienced SME developers. Now let's get into this week's episode. And now to introduce your host, Alex Harrington-Griffin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real Developer Podcast with myself, Alex Harrington-Griffin. And I'm joined today by Andrew Hosford from Pure Structured Finance from the Trusted Land Finance Panel and Ollie Davis from Oliver Davis Homes. Morning, gents. Morning. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, hi, Alex. Morning. Morning, Oliver. Good to have you both. Ollie, you're in early doors into the series, so it's very exciting to have you as one of our first guests to get through as well. So I've given our audience a little bit of an insight into the factual background of Oliver Davis Homes. We'd love you to fill in the gaps and add a bit more color to the story. So can you tell us a bit about how the business started, your background, and what you're kind of focusing on now? Yeah, sure. So we started in 2015. Seems like a long time ago now. I worked in a very different space before. I was actually in motorsport, worked in Formula One for wow. the best part of 10 years, working for the principal rights holder. So working for Bernie Eccleston's company, traveling a lot. But I was always into property. So I bought my first apartment when I was 19, a good renovation project. And throughout my time in the sport, I had a lot of sort of down weekends and a lot of downtime between events. And I would always be renovating a, a flat here or a house there or and just building up into a bit of momentum. And it got to the point after 10 years of doing a lot of traveling where trying to grow up a little bit and settle down and have children and that kind of stuff. And being away 30 weeks a year didn't really align with that lifestyle. So yeah, I decided to go into property and raised a bit of backing from just family and friends as it always starts out and went straight out of the blocks with a, an apartment scheme for 16 units. So that was our beginning seven years ago. Now we've scaled year on year. We'll deliver 120 units this year, 500 units in planning. It's scaled well. So we're, we're really pleased with how it's grown and it's, yeah, it's exciting times. I've heard this on other podcasts, but yeah, I don't want to think back to what I was doing at 19 versus buying my first property. I was spending a lot of money in in Australian bars, I know that much. And it certainly wasn't doing anything as sensible as buying property. <laughs> yeah, it was the good old days though. When you know, I mean, back at, back at that point, I mean, it was 2006. So I could put down, I think I put down eight grand on my first apartment and borrowed the rest. So, I mean, the leverage you could get back in those days was incredible. It was obviously it's very different now. Mm. So yeah, different times, but yeah, it was good to get on the ladder at that age anyway. I don't want to tell you where my grand went. <laughs> tell us just briefly about the mission now. So you obviously know how you started. 
What's the mission now? What's the pure focus? Yeah, so I mean, to date, we've done a lot of large scale conversions and some new build stuff as well. But we've always done build to sell, which is, has worked well, you know, we, it's been successful, we've built some good sites, we've, we've sold them well, we've, we've never really held on to anything for too long. But now we're getting to the stage where we want to sort of pivot, and we're moving into the rental sector and, and BTR really. So everything we've got in build now or in planning going forwards is all about long term view long-term income, long-term revenue structures, making sure that we're buying the right sites in the right locations that we know there'll be a rental demand for, be that mid-market family housing or town centre, young professional accommodation. So our whole drive now is all about getting that pipeline for our BTR portfolio to build over the next five years. What's the reasoning for that other than income stream? I mean, I assume it could be quite a straightforward answer, but I'd like to know if there's a bit more behind the methodology of that. Yeah, I mean, so as a developer, it, the build to sell model is clearly successful for a lot of people and a lot of developers work that way through the whole career. For us, we've just found that it's quite peaks and troughs. So you've got months and months and months of obviously spending to build a scheme, and then you get the nice lump of profit at the end if you've built right. But it's there's no consistency there and you have to keep building to keep that profit, you know, coming in every three months, six months, whatever it is, how long it takes you to build your scheme. Yeah. Whereas we figured that we don't actually need to realize that that big profit, that chunk of money, once we finish a scheme, we can actually leave it in, leave it on the table, refinance what it's cost us to build and buy the site and take the long-term view. You know, we can then get the income on a monthly basis and also the capital growth as the assets, you know, grow year on year. We can either realize that money or leave it in. And when I get to my old age, I can take a look at back at what we've got built and have not sold anything, hopefully, and, and, and have a good day. So... Yeah, very sensible way of looking at it. Yeah, a, a much more sustainable, consistent cash flow, I guess, ultimately. Yeah, it just gives you that baseline of income. You know, we haven't got to look at if we've got three schemes in build and nothing ready to sell. It's just it's a debt pile, which is fine because we're going to sell everything and get that all paid down. But if we've got 50 units behind us producing income on a monthly basis, it's just that that nice baseline for the business to operate and, and liquidity is obviously crucial with any SME development business. So it just gives us that stability, which is what we always look for. Are you going to solely be looking at buying and then and developing and holding or will you continue with the buy to sell as well if you get the right offer for, for something? Well, we're doing a scheme right now, a 74 unit scheme in Maidstone, which we've actually sold to a housing association. That was the last of our sort of build to sell schemes we've done. And that works nicely in that we're actually almost like a principal contractor role. We packaged up the scheme for the HA and I'm now building it on their behalf, having sold them the whole package, which again is good cash flow. But really, we're trying to just move into the ability to keep uh, our portfolio growing. It's that much, much longer term view that yes, it's nice to have drip feeds of, of lumps of profit coming in, but actually it's a really short term game. And we can take a look at the much longer view. And if we you know, we don't need to go and buy a nice house or buy a nice car or whatever it is. We can actually leave it in and take the long view. And that, that I think that's really important for our lifestyle. As myself and my business partner, Rory, you know, progress. We've both got young children, young families. We want to build up a solid basis for them to grow on, you know, grow up with. And that's, I think, the best way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Can you, I guess, probably the, the, the older development ones probably be one of the answers here, but give us a sort of a taste of or or. Any deals that you have that stand out as sort of favorites or highlights from your time developing? There's a couple. My first ever deal, that 16 apartment scheme back in 15, is probably getting it purchased was probably my favorite scenario ever. I was obviously 
you know, a new developer from a, you know, I'd obviously done some bits and pieces before over the years, but it was very much individual units. This was a bigger thing. And I found an empty, fairly rundown office space in a pretty rough location. And it got PD rights on it for 16 units and thought, okay, well, do I really want these units? Are they really in the right location for me to try and sell? And I went to a senior lender and they sort of said, yeah, I'm not sure about the location. So I had to sort of sit back and think. And I knew it was it was a good deal because it was no one else could really see what it could be. So I went to the local authority and pitched it to them for, I knew they had a very, very long wait for their housing list, particularly on the emergency housing list. And we did the deal that they would agree to buy the site from me once complete, pre me buying it. Wow. So I exchanged a contract with them that they would buy it from me before I'd even bought the site. Wow. So I then went back to the senior and said, look, I agree. The location's not amazing and they would be hard to sell, but I've already sold them. And here's the contract. <laughs> amazing. Did you just drop the mic and then walk out? At that point, it was just like, okay, well, here's your money. You can, you can go and build it because, yeah. you know, it's secure, which was, you know, to get started, that was how it had to kind of think a bit outside the box and that got us going. And then after that point, you know, you build relationships with lenders. We built a relationship with our now investor who was with us on that first deal and still with us now who does some equity stuff with us. And it was just just the way it started. So that was a really cool story. And, you know, the senior lender, I still do some bits and pieces with. And we retell that story every time we see each other. It was sort of, we both stood in front of the site thinking, wow, this is really not very nice. But, you know, doing that deal with the council was the best way to, to make it work. And it did. Well, yeah, I mean, you completely de-risked it. I mean, it's phenomenal. Ollie, can I just ask, how much has that influenced your strategy going forward? And I appreciate we've all, you know, you sort of leapfrogged into that forward selling situation to almost kind of, you de-risk significantly. Obviously, there is a certain element of that that's carried through on to build to rent. And just to blend in, you know, I got to know you principally as having the main contractor business, obviously doing your own development deals as well. How much has your kind of contractor background worked into your approach to land buying and considering these deals going forward in the build to rent space? Yeah, it, it's it's so important. I mean, the, the land purchasing part is the most important bit of any development process. You know, my, my dad uh, is a businessman and he always told me from a very young age, you can be trying to sell anything and it could be amazing, but if you haven't bought it right, then it's a non-starter. You can't, you'll never make money. So from my perspective, if I haven't bought the site well, we may as well not build it because we're never going to make money. We're busy fools at that point. So the approach to land acquisition is where I spend most of my time. So as a business, we're two business partners, myself and Rory. Rory is more the tail end of, of development, all the operations stuff and back end. I'm front loaded in the business. So I look at all the site acquisitions. I go out and knock on doors and make sure that we're buying right so that we've got the right schemes ahead of us. Does that make sense? It does 100%. And whilst we're on the subject of obviously buying sites, we are in Q2 2022 as this is recorded. I have in front of me your Q2 requirements that are with Trusted Land. And for the audience sake, just the sort of detail that Trusted Land collects are the quarterly development requirements for resi sites from our real developers. We do put a bit of precision on it. So this is not necessarily representative of all of Oliver Davis's home's interest, but from the real developer perspective, we have a focus on Kent, East Sussex, and Essex of land values up to about 10 million. 
Ideally, starting from about 15 up to about 150 units, obviously looking at that build-to-rent focus, I'd imagine probably the getting close to 40, 50 is really where it starts to get interesting for you guys. Yeah. And obviously, given the background in conversions, you know, you would look at conversions as well as using that contractor background to go straight from scratch and, and new build entirely. And I can see here, definitely, you know, using that contractor experience and, and probably workforce to start your pound per square foot at 325 pounds per square foot going up to... 650 pounds per square foot and you would look at with and without planning is that fairly representative of davis requirements at the moment yeah that's right i mean we're looking for really there's two sectors we're going into on, on the btr thing which is where everyone else is which is the town center yeah you know, apartment schemes of, of relative density that we can deliver or there are edge of town but connected towns towns that have got good connectivity to london on the train network for mid-market family housing so we want to, we've got two schemes in planning now, which are two, three and four bedroom semi-detached and terrace housing, but they're within five minutes drive of a train that gets you into London in less than an hour. Okay. In my perspective, that's always got underpin value yeah. and that will always have a demand from rental. So those two markets are exactly what we're looking for at the moment. Okay. And I'm going to throw in the tough question here, which is, you know, I think a good podcast always extracts some sort of perspective, advice, solutions from the guests. And, and we're going to try and squeeze a bit of juice from you, but also to help the land community listening, land representatives understand what is your approach to getting through some of those key challenges, which everybody acknowledges at the moment, really come down to planning and can materials and construction. What is Oliver Davis's approach to overcoming those two kind of key hurdles and anything else you want to add in there as a, as a hurdle that you're seeing at the moment, either now or coming up? Yeah, I mean, clearly materials is a problem at the moment and the ever-changing landscape of both availability and price on materials. We've seen... 50% increase in workload just to get materials to site because where we would previously go to one merchant for 10 items, we can't do that anymore because either they haven't got it or it's too expensive. So we have to shop around. So our internal costing is very difficult to manage for, for that kind of stuff. So from land acquisition perspective and from, from working with agents, we need them to understand that bill costs have gone up and they need to be appraising from a developer's perspective when they're starting to pitch us sites because, and I appreciate, you know, land representing a vendor and they're trying to get a buyer and the vendor will always want a really high price, but there is a certain level where it just doesn't work. So from my perspective, from a, if I've got land agents calling me, the most important bit is that they've done at least a surface appraisal of what it will sell for, what it will cost to build in a ballpark way so that we can have a relatively you know, informed conversation about it. I get sent land stuff regularly and it's, well, the owner wants X million. And, and you kind of go, well, that doesn't make sense. It can't be built for less than it's going to be worth at the end. So why are we even talking? It's making sure that those land agents have, you know, really, really looked into it heavily and, and done the work, to be honest, rather than just ping it forwards and, and expect a fee. So yeah, that's the most valuable thing to me is having an informed pitch of a land deal rather than just a one pager which has got oh we've got this available again does that make sense yeah it does i suppose the difficulties always comes down to the land representative having the same insights and knowledge as someone like you would and this is what i will say is our real developers are exactly that they are real developers they do this every day and the land community are somewhat detached from those sort of hardcore but i think it's about them listening and making sure they pay attention to suggestions like this really yeah i mean it takes a conversation with three or four developers in one geographic space to know availability of, you know, workforce, 
price per square foot on average. You know, you speak to four different people and they say, well, we're building new build for between 180 and 210 a square foot. Between four different people will say the same thing. You can appraise a site pretty quickly and pretty easily. So it's just making sure that they're talking to the real developers and they know we look for when pitching us a site. That's the most important thing. Okay. Ollie, just sort of picking up on something that you said earlier and then tying it into my next question, which is a sort of finance-driven question. Buying for the right price, obviously very, very key to making the deal profitable. Obviously, having funds or finance in place for any deal is vital. But in terms of securing the sites and then negotiating the right price so that your deal is profitable for you, what's your approach to that? Is it equity driven of your own cash to buy and negotiate hard with the current owner? Or is it relationship driven with lenders that you know will support you and you can go and hammer down the initial price with the current owner with confidence? Yeah, it means a bit of both. We do a lot of trying to find sites off market and we either get fed them from, you know, an agent who's got a relationship with a landowner or we'll do some our own digging and find an owner. And that's just all relationship stuff. My a lot of my time is spent talking to land agents or landowners and understanding what's going to drive them it can a lot of people are driven by time nowadays people have got you know they want money now well that's great you know it's the what's the triangle of speed quality time you know you can get something really fast but it's going to cost more money or going to cost less money if you want to sell your site really fast you're not going to get top money for it but it can be really quick if you want or if you want to wait and go through the planning process you'll get loads of money but it will take two years so it's just A lot of my time is spent speaking to landowners and understanding what's the driver, why are they trying to sell it, what's their objective. Because once you understand that, you can then pitch them for what they want. So yeah, we have an ability now with the relationships we have with equity with our debt funders that we can be quite bullish and pitch at a price that we want to pay because we can be fast. But also it's making sure that we have those relationships. Again, I spend a lot of time with lenders making sure that they know where we are, they know what we're doing, they know what we're capable of, because that's something that only builds over time. You know, senior lenders have deals come in, 20 deals a day. I'm sure they get, you know, the big lenders, your closest, your lending best, your, all those guys must get deals come in all day long. They need to see that these developers that are pitching them are capable. So we, again, do a lot of time pitching, putting stuff on LinkedIn and various social platforms to show that we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. So when you pitch them, you want to fund a site, they go, oh yeah, well, we've seen your, you know, seen your sites you've done before. We know that you're capable. Yeah, it's making sure that the reputation is out there to deliver because that's what everyone's out for, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you're, if you're lending somebody money, you need to know that they're going to perform and, and pay you back. So yeah. <laughs> that's that's what we we try and do. Okay, interesting. Holly, one key question that we always used to ask our land representatives when we did virtual forums with Trusted Land last year and through the pandemic as well. And we were always sort of stepping back into the question, you know, whether it was Savills and Cushman Wakefield or a small commercial agent like uh, Perry Holson Co. or Man & Co. is asking them for advice that we want to remind or to sort of install in a professional developer because there's always little minders we can benefit from. With the land representative audience in mind, what is a piece of advice that you could give to the average land agent, land sourcer, land representative, to help them bring deals to Oliver Davis Homes and get those deals seen and, and progressed as, as quickly as possible? I think there's multiple things they can do. One of the key things is make sure that the vendor they're representing has got a lawyer that understands development. The number of times we try and buy a site and the lawyer on the other side is 
family lawyer that's been with the family for 35 years that's you know bought and sold their house a couple of times who just doesn't know what a development deal looks like and how a senior lender's involvement looks like you know because senior lenders will want their own legal representation in the deal so suddenly you've got three lawyers all involved in it and it can get complicated and if the lawyer hasn't got experience in that, it can really slow it down and be quite frustrating. That's one thing. Of course, the appraisal thing is really important for a land agent to bring forward. And the other thing which I find is really helpful is not putting good land sites on the major platforms. And that might sound stupid, but if a site's gone on Rightmove, for example, I won't look at it because there will be 20 people that are chomping at it, paying or saying they can pay well over the odds. And again, the number of times that we've had sites come back to us after four months, we've made an offer and, oh, we've been gazumped by somebody by you know, five or 10%. And then it comes back around because that person wasn't real or they didn't have the money or they were a dreamer. It needs to be, a land agent needs to know and qualify who they're pitching to because otherwise it, we just all get frustrated and, and we lose interest. Yeah. Or have someone else like, I don't know, trusted land, do the qualification for you. So you know well, exactly dealing with serious right. parties in the first place. I don't know, just a, just, <laughs> I, just I a, ro- that a, one ro- for you. a rogue I mean... idea. Thank you very much. I, yeah. My bat was in the hand as well. I think you probably get an amen from Andrew and I, certainly on the legal part of it as well. Oh, yeah. We've both seen it a lot. Mm. So conscious of time, I don't want to hold you too much longer here, Ollie. So final, final question for you. What does being a real developer mean to Oliver Davis Homes? And what are the characteristics you think make up good property developer for us you know being a real developer is is exactly that so as a business we're small but we're trying to play a bigger part in certainly the kent development market you know we've scaled from 16 apartments year one to 125 this year in six years with you know 125 million in planning and and to be developed over the next three and a half years but the crucial part of that has been understanding and breaking down the process right from finding a site pre-planning running the planning process running the legal process you're doing things like planning committees and working very closely with architects making sure they're designing the right scheme that's buildable that's deliverable and all that stuff and then being on site managing supply chain staff subcontractors being you know present so that you know i'm in a hard hat and high vis every day on site making sure that things are being done right as well as trying to find new sites as well as getting stuff through planning being a real developer is that it's finger on the pulse it doesn't stop it's all the time and to get on and get pushed forward with our business it's hard work you know there are a lot of people that are in the property industry in inverted commas who just think it's a golden ticket to make loads of money really easily it's not it is hard work if you want to do it properly and get stuck in it's hard work, but the rewards are amazing because you can drive past the scheme you delivered last year and go, oh, I built that. Yeah. And now people are living it and you can see the curtains opening and closing. You think, wow, I remember standing in there when it was a massive pile of dust and now it's someone's home and that's incredibly rewarding. And to run the process from pre-planning through to build to rent and be dealing with tenants on a site that I acquired from nothing three years previously, the reward's amazing, but it's just loads of work. But yeah, it's, it's great fun. If that last two minutes isn't a future soundbite for this podcast, then I don't know what we're carrying on with. So uh, that was phenomenal. Uh, yeah. That's a great response. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, the imagery there. Oh, I thought, oh, that's, that's incredible. Families, you're giving people the opportunity to start a family or build memories in a home when you were just standing in a, yeah, a dust pile or a, a load of mud or a field is, yeah, 
fantastic. Yeah, and we're hoping, you know, once we've got our portfolio built the right way, and because we're focusing on particular towns, you know, we can take somebody from their first rental one-bedroom apartment in a town centre into a two-bed as they perhaps meet somebody into a three-bedroom semi on the outskirts of town once they start to grow their family, and they can stay with us. And if we can manage our tenancy and our, our relationship with our tenants correctly over the over the years, then there's no reason why that shouldn't be. So we're hoping that we can maintain residents and build that relationship with them over over the long term. So that's the plan. Yeah, amazing. Sounds like someone's definitely been on the trip to the States recently. <laughs> well done, Ollie. Thank you very much. And thank you to my co-host, Andrew, for today as well. Well done, gents. Before we end the episode, I just wanted to thank Alex for having me on as co-host. I'm Andrew Hosford from Pure Structured Finance. And as Alex had mentioned earlier, I wanted to just give a little insight into something that we've seen quite a lot of in the market. And it also ties into what Ollie from Oliver Davis Homes was talking about earlier. And that is buying land correctly for the right price. It's obviously very key to what your profits can look like at the back end. And one way that we all know that everyone can go about that is obviously by having cash in the bank, being a cash buyer or certainly a large amount of equity sat there. So you can go and negotiate purchase price quite strongly and try and make a move quickly. One of the ways that we've seen a number of our clients do this is by taking out a sort of dev exit bridge on their current assets before they've sold them. So if you're looking at a number of units that have recently completed, refinancing the development facility, which often is coming out cheaper than the original development facility anyway, so there's a cost saving, but not only replacing the development facility, but also releasing some equity from those properties which then obviously raises the personal coffers and allows you to have the cash in the bank to go and negotiate hard and buy that new piece of land before you've sold your prior development. Certainly an interesting tool and certainly something that our clients are using a lot at the moment. It's Alex Harrington Griffin again. Hope you enjoyed that episode of The Real Developer Podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, if you want to head to trustedland.co.uk or realdeveloper.co.uk, you can download the quarterly requirements index from dozens of experienced SME firms. And of course, at any point, if you want to discuss with Trusted Land, matching your off-market site to the exact requirements of experienced accredited developers, drop an email to land at trustedland.co.uk. Remember, if you're going to deal in land and development, keep it real.